Hi, I'm Darren Peppard. Welcome to the Leaning into Leadership podcast, the podcast dedicated to today's hardworking leader. Join me every Sunday for leadership insight, inspiration, and a little pep talk to keep you rolling down your road to awesome. Hey friends, welcome into episode number 97 of the Leaning Into Leadership podcast brought to you by EverFi. 97 folks, holy cow, 100 is right around the corner. Put it on your calendar folks, October 4th, 2023, episode number 100, a special episode, a special midweek episode is going to drop here on the Leaning Into Leadership podcast. We've got some exciting news that we're going to be sharing, some changes to the format of the program, um, and just some really cool updates. And I cannot wait to tell you all about it. Cannot wait to celebrate 100 with all of you. If you're not already subscribed, if you're not already uh, getting those automatic downloads, make sure you make that happen so you don't miss episode number 100. Now, for episode number 97, my guest on the show today is Katie Powell. Folks, if you don't know Katie Powell, you need to know Katie Powell. Let me tell you this about Katie. She is the director for mid-level programs for AMLE and is the author of the books Boredom Busters and Frustration Busters. Uh, Part of her role with AMLE allows Katie to work closely with schools, districts, and affiliate organizations through the successful middle school book study assessment and schools of distinction programs, as well as providing professional development and coaching on a variety of mid-level topics. I had the opportunity to meet Katie in person back in March at the North Carolina Mid-Level Educators Conference. By the way, an amazing conference. They're doing it again uh, this coming March 2024, North Carolina Mid-Level Educators Conference. Folks, go and check out the lineup. Holy cow. This thing is like a national conference being held in Charlotte, North Carolina. Check it out. Go ahead and go. You don't have to live in North Carolina to go to this conference. This thing is amazing. But Katie and I had an opportunity to meet in person, to uh, sit down, have a meal together. And I'll tell you, uh, her her knowledge and her skill um, goes beyond just mid-level education. Yes, that's where she has really poured her heart and soul. But Katie is truly a great educator and a great human being. And I truly enjoyed my conversations with her there and definitely the conversation that I'm going to share with you today. We talked about their Schools of Distinction program, we talked about Frustration Busters, talked about Boredom Busters, and we talked about kind of that gap that exists in teacher retention, along with also talking about how we develop those partnerships with parents that are meaningful. Because in middle school, that's where it all seems to start to break down. And Katie has some amazing ideas. You're going to hear that and so much more right on the other side of this word from our sponsor, EverFi. Hey leaders, today's podcast is sponsored by EverFi. EverFi provides districts, schools, and teachers with free digital resources to teach essential life skills like character development and financial education. That's right, I said free. EverFi partners with organizations like the United Way to give teachers hundreds of turnkey, standards-aligned lessons and 24-7 support. District and school administrators are supported with a suite of services like professional development and data reporting, all at no cost. Learn more at everfi.com slash edleaders. That's E-V-E-R-F-I dot com slash edleaders. I began my career as a middle school science teacher. I will be honest, when I began the path towards becoming an educator, I did not think I wanted to be a middle school teacher. 
I wanted to be a high school teacher. Not a lot of people set out with the goal of being a middle school teacher. But those of us who have been blessed to spend time working in middle schools and with middle school kids know what an absolute wonderful experience it can be. Well, joining me on the show today is Katie Powell, and Katie is the director for mid-level programs for AMLE. She's also an author. We've got some awesome things we want to talk about, but Katie, welcome into the show. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. So just really quick, Katie, before we dive into our conversation, we've already talked, you know, before hitting the record button about a bunch of different things that we want to get into. Uh, share really quick for my listeners uh, something they should know about you and uh, maybe, maybe even something that, that I don't have in your bio that will kind of set us up for this conversation. Goodness, something you don't have in your bio. Um, well, I guess I could say I'm one of those people who found my way into teaching unintentionally. Um, there's a few of us out there that I was yeah. going to go to art school. I actually studied engineering all through high school and then switched to art right at the end and was accepted to Savannah College of Art and Design. And then in the end, my family couldn't afford it. And doing that um, like three weeks before freshman orientation, trying to figure out even what school I was going to go to and what I was going to study, um, landed at a small private college in Tennessee. And my mom picked teacher education for me because she said that's a real job. So I can do that one. Um, and I tell you what, I've never looked back. It has been a profession that uses all the quirk and seemingly disconnected aspects of my personality and my interests and puts them together and requires my best and my creativity every day. Um, so this has been not an adventure I ever pictured for myself, but absolutely the best possible one to be on. I just think that's awesome that your mom chose teacher education for she you. Did. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so shout out to Katie's mom. Good work right there. Um, yeah. So, so I'm curious, um, you know, I, I mentioned right at the top uh, that, that I began my career in middle school. That, that was not where I expected to be. Um, I truly love middle school, and, I, and we can definitely spend some time talking about middle school. I know we will. Um, did you, how much time did you spend teaching at the middle school, or am I making assumption that you did just because you work for AMLE? Oh, yeah. I uh, started teaching in 2005 um, and spent the bulk of my career, um, my classroom teaching career in the middle grades. Um, I taught middle school special education um, and then Title I and then um, sixth grade ELA. I did a couple of elementary stints. Um, we relocated as a family. And so one school year, I worked as an aide in the Title I program of the local elementary. Um, I taught sixth grade in an elementary setting, and I've done a little bit of Title I um, at an elementary. Just my position wound up covering both the elementary and the junior high buildings and um, split my time between the two. Had one of the best instructional assistants on the face of the planet to kind of run the program at the elementary building the days I wasn't on site. Um, so yeah, most of my career has been with the middle grades. Um, I started working full-time with AMLE um, about a year and a half ago. So I was classroom teaching largely in the middle grades until that point. That's super cool. Um, you know, there's just something special about middle, about middle school. Um, you know, the students, um, a, as I recall it, and, and even it is my time during, a, you know, being my, my superintendent time, uh, you know, being able to spend some time in the middle school with the middle school kids actually helped coach middle school basketball a little bit while I was a superintendent, um, mostly out of necessity, part out of just still 
there's that basketball coach that will always be in me. Um, and I really enjoyed being able to do that. But there's something about middle school kids that, you know, you get the best of both worlds. You get those, the elementary school kids who just, you know, they're absolute pleasers. They want to work hard for their teacher. But then you have kids, you know, at the same time going through lots of different changes and, um, you know, they want to be like the big kids at the high school mm-hmm. and, and they're, they're just not quite there. What, what are some of the things when, when people hear that, that you taught at, uh, at the mid-level grades, um, I'm sure you probably heard at some point in time, oh my God, what are you crazy? Or although there's no way I could do oh, yeah, that. All the time. I mean, <laughs> what, what were some of the things that you would tell people about, no, here's what it's really like to be at the middle school? Oh, there's so much I could share. Actually, probably the most, well, one of the most quintessential middle school stories that I shared that explains what it was like. Um, I was teaching a a reading recovery class once um, many years ago and had the students in a great big circle. We had just read a really compelling story. We're having this dialogue about, you know, what happened in, in our reading that day. And the students are really engaged in the conversation. And a boy raises his hand and I call on him and then he grabs his belly and shakes it a little and goes, you know, if there's ever a zombie apocalypse, I'm going to give somebody a really good meal. And I was like, I have no idea where to go with this. Thank you. Um, You know, one of my favorite things about middle school is that we had to earn them. Um, So many of them come with um, a background of not necessarily trusting the adult relationships in their life. Some of that's developmental because their sphere of influence is going beyond their family and they're looking for more peer influence. They're more guided by what's happening in culture than they used to be. And some of it is just the challenging nature of being a kid these days that a lot of kids come to us feeling kind of let down by the adult relationships in their lives. Um, There have been some interesting articles published about post-COVID adolescence. And kids are sharing stories about they're growing up in a time where school isn't safe, where violence is a reality, where disease changed the world practically overnight, and they don't feel safe. And they're looking around at the adults in their world going, why aren't you fixing this for us? Um, So middle schoolers, you have to earn them. And when you do, that relationship you have with them is amazing. Um, It's hard to describe if you haven't lived it yourself. But the magic of going into a a middle school kid's life and having that opportunity to be a person of influence in their world, but likewise, they're a person of influence in yours. And you have these experiences that, yes, you're, you're covering content together, but what you're really doing is having a momentary impact on a person's life. And we know that so much of our self-concept as a human being is really first being explored in early adolescence. So literally as we're helping our students, um, develop a sense of agency over their experience and and confidence in new challenges and the grit that they're going to fail sometimes and it's going to be okay, the resilience to get back up again, the social skills of navigating when the person who's been your best friend for, you know, 12 years isn't your best friend anymore, or the first rejection when you ask someone out for a school date or um, a date to the school dance, that these are experiences that are shaping who these kids are going to be for the rest of their lives. And we get to be a part of that. What a tremendous opportunity and responsibility that truly it was an honor to get to be a part of that story with these kids every day. And so, yeah, I had the moments of helping them fall in love with reading a book. There's magic when a kid who doesn't see themselves as a reader winds up so engrossed in a book that when you say it's time to stop reading, they shout at you no and demand to continue. Um, When you have to call the teacher they would go to next and say, hey, we're going to need five more minutes. Um, Yeah. 
But the real magic is in having the opportunity to be a part of these young human beings' lives in a very real and very impactful way. Um, I mean, man, what a privilege. Without question. And, you know, I, I like how you talked about that we're not only an impact on their lives, but that they are an impact on our lives too. Oh, you know, I, I talk, I talk frequently. Uh, I think you've heard me talk a little bit about those bamboo moments. You know, it's, it's years down the road before yeah. you see any fruit of the labors that you put in. And many times as a middle school teacher, you almost never see that because, you know, maybe, maybe they actually, they actually blossom at the high school level and you're not there with them, you know, and occasionally a kid comes back to you or, or now with social media, they reach back out yeah. to you. Um, is there, is there a moment for you? I mean, I've got a handful of those bamboo moments that, that stand out, but before we transition and, and talk about your work at, at AMLE mm -hmm. and, and your book and, and all that other kind of stuff, I'm just wondering, I mean, is there kind of one of those moments that, that stands out to you. Um, and, and I ask you this for this reason. Um, one, I'm curious the story, but two, I do feel very strongly that the more we share those bamboo moments with other people, the more we can remember what it is that really drives us, what our purpose really is in, yeah. in education. Um, it's easy to lose sight of those things, right? Yeah. Um, so the one that comes to mind the easiest because it's super time relevant. Um, I had a student when I was teaching sixth grade ELA a few years ago. Um, she's a high school student now and was just inducted to the National Honor Society um, last night. Um, her mom reached out to me recently just sharing um, through a Facebook post actually some of her daughter's accolades. Um, and her daughter is dyslexic. Um, their family story is that she was a really quick learner in early, early childhood and then just all of a sudden stopped and couldn't recognize letters. And um, the family worked hard to connect her with an Orton Gillingham tutor. They invested hard. She worked her tail off through school and always, you know, did her best. But she had some beliefs about herself because of that label. Um, and we had an experience in class the year I had her where we had the opportunity to join um, a Microsoft Flip event where we basically got to Zoom with the author of How to Train Your Dragon. And she was sharing part of her story as an author with dyslexia. Um, and Avery lit up and she said, I didn't know you could be an author if you have dyslexia. And it lit a fire in her spirit that just, it, it became this tremendous part of her identity that she's going to be an author. And she started writing all these stories and always like sharing them to me through the, the Google Drive, you know, so I could read what she was doing and keep up with them. Um, and it is still her life stream to be an author. I'm fully confident that I will be standing in line at, at whatever version of a bookstore exists at the time she publishes so that she yeah. can sign my copy of her first book when it goes to print, because I, I fully believe it will happen. Um, and, you know, her mom talks about my role in that. But I'll tell you here, we talked about that kind of um, reciprocal relationship we have with students. I don't know that it's necessarily who we are and what we do for them, but I think it's the environment we create where a student feels comfortable to discover themselves, that, that we create and work hard to create to foster the environment where a kid has the opportunity to go this is something i identify with this is something i want to be passionate about i plan to explore this that all i can take credit for is having created an environment where she felt comfortable exploring that for herself and finding that passion the rest of it was all her that story is so powerful you've got me like 
like half emotional over here. I, I really love that. I tell you, it's really something. Yeah, I bet. Congratulations for that. I think that's wonderful. Um, you know, I think about, you know, all that time as a, as a high school principal and uh, being part of those National Honor Society inductions. And, you know, for so many of the kids, I think we assume that it was just easy for them to oh, find yeah, their way no, to the, the National Honor Society. The story That's behind true. so many of those kids, they have worked hard. And I'll tell you, you know, there's um, some research I remember hearing summarized several years ago talking about how we have kids entering college at higher rates than we'd had in the past, but degree completion rates were still abysmal. And when they were unpacking who finishes a degree, um, one of the things they were really looking at is that there wasn't a strong correlation between grades and test scores and degree completion. There was correlation between grades and test scores and college entrance, but degree completion really boiled down more to those life skills of, I know how to handle that someone else in the room is better than me at something. I know how to handle that I failed at something and I'm going to pick myself up and try again, that I know I can survive it. Um, and I think our kids for whom it wasn't easy, our kids that did have to work hard, I think, man, the future facing them is exciting because those are the skills they're going to need to make it no matter what they want the future to look like for themselves. They're going to have exactly the skills they need to reach whatever dream they establish for themselves. And it's super exciting. That really is exciting. I love that so very much. And I'm wondering, so let, let's transition that now to, to your work at AMLE, because now from working in the classroom and having the impact on individual kids. Now you have the opportunity to impact middle school educators across the country. Talk a yeah. little bit about what, what does it really mean to, you know, to be in the role that you're in? Um, well, I love it. Um, so to try to explain what it is I do for a living, um, my organization, the Association for Middle Level Education, um, is a nonprofit membership organization. We have approximately 35,000 members worldwide. So we exist to support the educators who are working with middle grades aged kids in whatever grade configuration, whatever school setting they find themselves in. Um, so we're providing the research, the publications, the professional development, the resources, the even just network of human beings together to try to support the educators who are doing this work. And my job specifically, um, I run our successful middle school assessment program. So schools and districts can run um, a series of survey tools that help them gauge the degree of implementation of research evidence middle grades best practices and I analyze that data and produce a report for them that talks about their current strengths and areas for potential growth and recommendations for potential school improvement or district improvement planning um, and then do the related professional development to support that them in that work um, and related to that we have a school recognition program called schools of distinction where schools that are really embodying what it means to be a middle school well can apply to be recognized as a school of distinction and then we're able to offer them not just as an award, like here's a school that, that achieved this accolade, but again, in that vein of trying to create a network that educators can lean on, that we now have human examples of what it means to do middle school well, that we can connect other schools to. So they're not just reading about a practice in theory or on the page, but they can actually talk to the human beings, go see it in action um, and learn from what works in real settings with real kids, with the real challenges that we see these days, all of the above. Whether you're selecting resources and curriculum mapping or you're organizing PD days and analyzing data, administrators, you have a lot on your plate. So why not lighten the load by working with EverFi? It costs you nothing 
really. EverFi provides 100% free essential skills resources and services to over 11,000 school districts thanks to partners like the NFL and the United Way. Their standards-aligned resources focus on things like college and career readiness, character development, financial literacy, health, wellness, and other pivotal topics for long-term student success. Check out the free digital resources yourself at everfi.com slash edleaders. In addition to hundreds of free lessons, EverFi provides school leaders with a dedicated team who will align EverFi's resources to your curriculum maps, create tailored learning sessions for your next PD day, integrate EverFi's free platform with ClassLink and Clever, and provide you with regular data reporting and 24-7 support, all at no cost. Man, I wish I had known about EverFi when I was a school leader. Go to everfi.com slash edleaders to see why admin and teachers love partnering with EverFi. Then schedule a meeting to bring EverFi's free resources and support to your district. That's E-V-E-R-F-I dot com slash edleaders. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. That's really powerful stuff because I think I think the more the more times and, and this is true, you know, for our teachers in the classrooms too. I mean, if if we want to to see successful outcomes, we want to be able to provide those exemplars and being yeah. able to you know have a you know a selection of schools that that fit those exemplars. Um, as a superintendent, at at a point in time, we were working to transition to more of a project based learning type of, of of structure. There are exemplar PBL schools right. around the country. So what did we do? We jumped in an airplane and we went to see those schools. And so that same idea at the at the mid level. Um, I think is really, really strong. I, I want to go back, though, uh, for just a second. So you talked about the data piece. Mm-hmm. And those who know me well will be shocked that I'm going to ask a question about data because that's not really, you know, in my wheelhouse. But I'm curious, um, maybe share a little bit about um, what what really that data is. Like, like are there, you know, certain um, particular standards or are there, you know, like, like, certain traits or, or whatever that you're looking for. So that when, if I'm a mid-level uh, principal, for example, and I'm getting this report back from you, mm-hmm. is that going to give me certain things that are certain standards that we're going to say, hey, we're, you know, we're doing well here. Here's what we need to focus on. Yeah, absolutely. So folks who are not as familiar with our organization may not have heard, but we have a longstanding publication that gets updated every few years that summarizes current research into middle grades best practices. Um, It's essentially a a really robust meta-analysis of existing research. And out of that, we've identified five essential attributes, which are basically like core values for anyone who's working with kids in early adolescence. Any programming we we provide should be equitable, it should be responsive, it should be engaging, etc. Um, but then we've also identified 18 characteristics of successful middle schools. Um, so these are schools that, um, you know, have structures that account for um, opportunities for staff to work together in communities serving the same students like interdisciplinary teaming. And they have structures that support relationship building with students like advisory practices where staff have the time to build relationships with students in a way that 
that is meaningful, that students have an adult in the building they would go to if they had problems or concerns. They have strong counseling programs where the counselors are a resource for staff and students and parents and families. Um, they have strong relationships with their families and the community they serve. Um, so these characteristics are research evidenced. Um, the way staff then gauge or, or demonstrate, I guess, implementation of those characteristics is through a self-assessment. We have an eight-point Likert scale where staff just anonymously indicate the degree to which they see that practice or characteristic in place at their school. We break each of the 18 characteristics down into individual exemplar statements, um, all tied directly to research. So we've been through a full validation study. It's a really robust, really powerful tool. Um, it still only takes staff about 30 minutes to complete. That's really important. No one has time for anything else on their plate these days. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, staff just answer how much or how little they see it in place. And then the data, um, Helen on our team takes care of moving the data out of our um, survey tool into a draft report for me. And then I do the analysis from there um, and look at the mean score out of that eight point Likert scale for each of the exemplar statements. But then also the standard deviation, which tells us how similar or different those staff responses are. So we can see areas of tight alignment or areas where maybe, um, you know, the staff perspective varies tremendously. Where there may be the opportunity to shore up a foundation of belief or practice. Um, and we analyze all of that and provide the information back to schools. Um, it, it winds up being a really powerful and really exciting document, but I've heard from principals that sometimes with tools like this, they get this really beefy report and then it's like, all right, <laughs> good luck to you. Um, but we right. stay in relationship with them. So we meet with them to go over the results. And then if they need any support in prioritizing those recommendations or providing the professional development to staff or better understanding, unpacking um, the philosophy and research behind one of those characteristics, then we're right there to meet those needs and, and support them with the resources they need. And so if I'm a middle school principal or I'm a superintendent and I want that information, I want to do that survey, do I just mm -hmm. reach out to you? Do I yeah. contact my, my state agency? What, what do I do? No, it can come right through me. We, in fact, have buttons on the website where it can be purchased directly through the website. But if they have questions, we have a link on the website where folks can schedule a little Zoom meeting with me to talk it through, better understand it. Um, we try to keep the price point so low that principals may not even have to go through the approval process um, to secure funding for it. We try to keep it within that range where they can just decide for themselves in their school yeah. that this is something they want to do. Um, and we also try to keep the timeline tight for them. Um, it varies some because I'm one person making this happen and you may have noticed I'm busy sometimes, um, but we try to keep from closing their survey to the delivery of their report around four weeks. So, um, you know, here we are approaching the end of the school year. We'll be facing back to school season very soon. If they're wanting that kind of data to inform that planning, we can make that happen. Uh, it's very easy to make happen for them and just so much fun to really get you know, when I was teaching, I could see what was happening in my own classroom and my own school. And I was connected with other educators. So I had a sense of what was going on. But now, I mean, man, I, what, 100 or more schools a year that are participating in the survey, and I'm having the opportunity to watch the data come in for all of them. And it gives me a good sense, not just of what is happening at each school, but then across the profession. So when I meet with principals, I can talk about what I'm seeing with their school that honestly is just the story of what it is to be an educator these days, that it's the same thing I'm hearing and seeing and the statistics across education in the U.S. especially are really supporting it and what things might be specific to their environment that just, you know, the, the nature of their 
own school culture and community that there might be something that we can, you know, look at supporting and addressing so that students have that positive environment and staff have the opportunity to love their job again. This has been a hard season for educators. No kidding. So, you know, our survey, because staff are the ones who answer those exemplars, we get to amplify the voice of the staff and tell their story. And I tell you, that point of advocacy where we can say your staff are saying they need this, your staff are saying they don't have this, um, we get to go to bat for the staff in the building and say that these are the things that are needed to move the needle forward. I think that's really important. And, you know, you, you touched on something right there that uh, has been on my mind for, for quite a while. And actually, you and I talked about this but well before we hit the record button. Um, but, uh, but before I really get into, you know, our our, our teacher shortage, because I know we're going to end up going there. Um, I, I want to ask a little bit more about uh, something that you just said. Uh, you, you had mentioned that um, you're able to see not only the pulse of the individual school, but also what you're seeing across the country. Mm-hmm. What might be uh, one or two common themes that you're seeing when you take a look at all of this data? What, what, a, what an awesome thing for you to be able to see all of this data. Wow, that's so empowering. Yeah. Yeah, um, there are a couple of things that are probably um, just kind of the nature of of middle school lately, Um, and some is just some of the struggle to have true partnership relationships with families in the communities. Um, We know that can be challenging because even our highly engaged parents in the elementary school tend to have the mindset of they serve their time and they're done by the time their kids get to middle school, or there's a mis conception that your kids don't want you involved when they hit middle school, which is as far from the truth as possible. Um, The reality is that kids do very much still want their parents involved. It's just that that sphere of influence, like I said, has extended beyond the family. So they want the family and other significant members of their social world involved in their life. They still want their families to show up and be present with them. Um, So the family partnerships, I see lag a little bit um, related to that, the role of the community um, in relationship with the school we really advocate, we partner with American Student Assistance to support career exploration in the middle grades, that kids need to see the relevance, that what they're learning at school isn't just about a grade in the grade book, but that it's, you know, contributing to something real for their future or their community around them. Um, But specifically just now, um, looking at some of the research into the post-COVID learner, um, there was an interesting study that was being done unrelated to to the pandemic because it actually started pre-pandemic where a few dozen um, uh, adolescent aged kids had their brains scanned to be part of the study and then the world shut down. 10 months of shutdown and isolation, they rescanned those same kids and found that on average, their brains had aged three years in that 10 months of shutdown. And that's the same uh, impact we would see from significant trauma, like violence and neglect. Um, so it it essentially indicates that we have a generation that is trauma impacted. Um, so we're seeing a direct correlation from that. The, the areas of the brain that were affected have uh, a role in um, like emotion management and regulation, um, attention and memory, moving things out of working memory into long-term storage. Um, and those are critical things to making life work at school, you know, both your socialization and um, your learning. And so one of the things that we see pretty consistently across public education right now is despite the um, growth of programs like PBIS and restorative practices, we are seeing those suspension rates climb again. Um, and we can hear educators tell the story that they're 
that, yeah, that impact on emotion management and regulation is tangible in schools, um, that it's challenging and real. Um, and then we're also starting to see brand new, some declining attendance rates across public education. Um, and so I know schools are doing some really creative things to try to continue to combat that. Um, and that the heart of it is just making sure school is a place that, that feels safe to kids and that they want to be there so that they will show up. So I'm, I'm curious, um, all of that, all of that really, really amazing, uh, really, really interesting on the, uh, the research uh, that, you know, three years of aging yeah. and 10 months on, uh, on adolescent brain. I'm, I'm curious, though, you know, one of the things you were just saying uh, that, that kind of struck me was how, you know, we're seeing the suspension rates increase and that emotion management is something that has has become a struggle for for our adolescents. And I don't think any of us are surprised by that. But I wonder, let's flip it to the other side of the desk. And I don't know if you, you have any data or research or just some thoughts on this, but working with schools across the country, one of the things that I hear so frequently um, are teachers themselves are struggling with oh, yeah, their time. own emotion management. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, it's it's kind of a chicken or the egg thing, but, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I, I guess I'm just kind of curious your thoughts on that. And, and how, do we, how do we support our teachers in that? Good question. Um, and I'll tell you the statistics around the, what it is to be a teacher. That story started before the pandemic. Um, We already were in a profession where the majority of teachers would have described their mental health as not good, where we were already losing teachers at a rate we couldn't sustain. The estimated cost of attrition in public education was $7.3 billion annually um, prior to the pandemic. So this was a story that was already worrisome before the pandemic. And then post-pandemic, what I've anecdotally seen an increase of, and it's supported by, by the numbers too, but it's the human story I'm hearing over and over again is um, what it is to be a veteran educator, to love your job, to believe this is your calling, but to feel so weary and discouraged in it that you don't love your job anymore, that you feel like you may just be showing up and biding your time. Um, there's, you know, I describe it kind of two ways when I when I talk about this through my frustration busters work. But one is those days where during your prep period, you turn off the light and sit under your desk eating the reward candy instead of doing any work because, <laughs> hey, you just need a moment to like right. pull yourself together. Um, but then there's also that moment where you lock your classroom door at the end of the day. And there's that moment of pause when the lock clicks and you wonder, am I going to come back tomorrow? Um, and the loss of veteran educators, including veteran educators leaving their contracted positions mid-year, um, is worrisome um, because those are folks who are often years from retirement where this has been their life's dream. Um, I was in a presentation at South by Southwest EDU recently hosted by Raise Your Hand Texas, and the moderator from Raise Your Hand Texas said, when we talk about the statistics of the loss of educators, and she was speaking specifically to those in the first five years of the profession, she said, yeah, those are statistics those are numbers. But what I don't want us to lose sight of is the fact that each one of those represents a dream. Someone invested money to go to college or a teacher training program to do this. This is what they imagine themselves doing. They got excited to decorate their classroom for the first time. They bought all the stuff, they did all the things, and now they're leaving it. And no one makes that decision easily. No one just goes, hey, this thing I've invested in and dreamed of, I'm just going to walk away from it. So it must be very hard um, professionally and personally to find yourself in that position. Um, And for educators who might be listening in and feel that way right now, I would tell them that they're far from alone, that this is a narrative that um, 
that needs some attention right now. Yeah, far from alone would be correct. It's probably more that they're part of the majority. Um, I'm sure that many of them feel like they're in the minority, but in reality, that's just that's just not true. Um, I mean, let's face it, we all went through a very significant trauma. And, you know, uh, immediately it's, you know, okay, you know, now we're back. And there was this belief of, you know, oh, we're going to go back to normal, whatever in the world that meant, um, which never happened and and never was going to and probably never should have happened. But, um, you know, as as schools, I think it's so important, especially with our leaders, for us to really pour that energy and that effort into really taking care of the human beings that that walk into our school every single day. Um, I had a conversation with with an educator, uh, a district level professional a couple of days ago. And just this Monday, they came in and there was a teacher who wasn't there and they couldn't figure out what was going on. Well, they found keys and a resignation letter just sitting on their desk. And they're just, you know what, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And whether that's, you know, all the negative rhetoric around education, the the legislative overreach right now, uh, you yeah. know, parental frustrations, all of that stuff uh, yeah. has made it really difficult to be an educator. Whether you're a teacher, yeah. whether you're a school leader, uh, no matter what your what your role might be. And 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 you and I were talking about this um, a couple of weeks ago, and I, I'd like to maybe just jump into it for a couple of minutes. Um, there are a lot of there are a lot of things that people are trying to do to get new educators into the pipeline, whether that's through, you know, uh, programs that states are sponsoring or the districts are sponsoring, you know, kind of a grow your own, you know, a paraprofessional gets an opportunity to, to, to grow into a teacher position or, or whatever. But when you and I were talking, you, you said it so eloquently, I know I'll get it wrong, but essentially you said that's wonderful for the long term, but that doesn't help us in the short term. Let's talk about that short term issue that, that is exactly what we're already on clearly we know people are leaving at an alarming rate. How how do we stop the bleeding? Well, I mean, I suppose if I knew the full answer to that, um, I'd probably be a very wealthy and in-demand woman right now because um, I I tell you, it's a subject that honestly people are kind of even afraid to talk about because I I wonder if we're afraid if we start pulling at these threads, just how far it'll unravel, um, just what'll come with it. but I, I think first I, I will say that the work that's being done to look at that first five-year problem and getting teachers into the profession and keeping them there is valid. Um, but I think the other side of the story that is not being told as often is that there are educators who have been in the classroom, sometimes approaching 30 years, love their job, feel very called to do it, and are afraid to do their job well, are discouraged in what it means to do their job. What their job is has changed tremendously. Um, We even have, and I I am sensitive to this, that districts are facing the really tough decision. If they have underqualified staff and unstaffed positions, then they might feel the need to move to a highly scripted curriculum approach because then, hey, at least they've got some reliability of curriculum no matter who's in the role. But then you have teachers for whom there's no latitude for creativity to be responsive to students' needs. They can't so much as choose to do a read aloud if they have 10 extra minutes because the curriculum is prescribed and they have 
to be on the same lesson as all of their colleagues on that day delivering it the exact same way. Um, and so we have educators who find that their job doesn't feel like their job anymore. Um, and they don't love it. They don't have enough of those little pieces of love and creativity and encouragement to hang on to. Um, and I, I think when I think about what to do to help them, um, I think part of where we need to start is validating that story. Um, you know, there's a sense that schools have so much work to do in such an uphill climb that as we look at what school improvement and district improvement looks like, we may feel compelled to take on initiatives and make them mandates that everyone is going to do this thing. And it may be a very valid thing in the world of middle school. We see it with, for example, like uh, advisory. Like, yeah, we're all going to do advisory. You're going to have 20 minutes a day with students. You're going to do this SEL curriculum. Here are your lessons. But if we don't take the time to adequately support educators in, in making those changes, they might be compliant, they might rebel against it, it might feel miserably for them because they're not on board with the why. And in a time when everyone is so fatigued, I think we need to be really careful what we ask of educators and make sure that we sustainably support them. Profession uh, there was one of the statistics I've looked at recently is around the fact that programming like PBIS and restorative practices have definitely increased in the last five years. But what didn't increase was the professional development opportunities for educators. We grew programs without growing time and training to support those programs. And so one of the things that happens, especially one of the big challenges right now is around discipline, that sometimes the way we approach some of these um, behavioral philosophy changes for a school or a district is to tell teachers what they can't do anymore. You can't send a student to the hallway anymore. We can't suspend them for these things anymore. And we haven't replaced the things they can't do with things they can do. So what we essentially just do is take power from a teacher and then put them in a position where they have real life human beings at one of the most challenging times of their lives in front of them. And that potential for chaos out of that is so high and so tangible at all times that that loss of power feels very scary. Um, it doesn't feel safe. You don't necessarily know that your admin have got you. We're in a weird political climate around education these days where there's a lot of fear and a lot of mistrust and it feels very hard to do their job. So I think any time we consider what what a teacher can't do anymore or shouldn't do anymore. We need to be filling those toolboxes back up with everything they can do. Um, we got to give them options with, with strategies and we've got to give them the opportunity to personalize their profession where they can love it. Again, um, we got to let teachers fall back in love with teaching and honor them as professionals, give them the space to do that. All of that is just is just so so powerful, and uh, you know the, the very last thing right there is just uh, help them fall in love with teaching again, and you know give them the opportunity to, I think even just share their best practices with yeah. each other. You know, right now there is so many things, or there are so many things rather that that are being pushed on. You know, because of learning loss, a phrase that I really can't stand, but right. Um, yeah, I'm not, but I'm not going to chase that. I promise. Um, but but definitely, you know, giving our giving our educators an opportunity to to understand. Well, this is this is what it should be. Restorative practices is a perfect example. You know, we're going to focus on restorative practices at the elementary level. It's now you can't use clip charts anymore. You know, okay, well, what can I use? You know, yes. and. If you don't arm teachers with with quality strategies, I love I love how you talked about it. Then there's no way that I mean they're going in with oh okay I, I know what I can't do but I have no idea what I can. Yeah. Um, they feel that their hands friction. tied. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, it creates friction with their administrator, um, puts them in a position where they start to resent the, re- the administrator, the administrators yeah. maybe even resenting teachers. Um, there's just so many things that have have really caused this 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 to be negative. So so one of the big things that, and I'm going to try to encapsulate this quickly, but um, big takeaway leaders from what what Katie just said, specifically with keeping the educators we have in the profession. Mm-hmm. Number one, make sure you're listening to them. I mean, really, really give them an opportunity to share what their struggles are, what their challenges are, not just with kids, but their own personal struggles and challenges. I think that's a really important piece that that, that we've talked about. Two, don't just tell them what they can't do. You got to make sure you're supporting them with what they can do. Yeah. And if you are bringing a new initiative into play, man, make sure they understand why. Um, you know, to me, one of the biggest mistakes we make in leadership is we add more initiatives to people's plates and they have no idea why we're yeah. doing that. Um, you know, it's it's to me, it's it's that big culture gap. You know, if we don't, you know, ensure that everybody feels like they're valued, like they're heard, like they're seen, like they're trusted, there's no way they're going to jump on board with all of these things. You, you talked about advisory as yeah. this is something we're going to do. Is it a best practice? Yes, it is. But if it's just shoehorned in and there's no training, there's no skills, there's no time to be able to be good at teaching those lessons in advisory. Good advisories, and you know this, Katie, good advisories are not, hey, you got the kid for 20 minutes. Make it a study hall. That's not a good advisory program, right? So make sure that we're supporting our educators in that way. And then, and just finally, um, help them find the joy in their job yeah. again. <laughs> That's yeah. just so powerful. I love that you that you said that. Um, let, let's transition really quick here to um, boredom busters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let, let's talk about frustration busters. I mean, what led you to put, put these two projects together? Um, well, boredom busters was um, kind of born out of, um, actually, it was I was classroom teaching um, Title I at the time, and AMLE had a call for presentations for their annual conference, and I kept that email open in the background of my computer for days, and every day I'd close down all my windows, and there it would be looking at me, and I'd go, oh, but I'm just a teacher. What do I have to share? And then finally, at the end of the week, thought, you know what? The worst they can tell me is no. So what am I risking? So I put together a proposal of some of the strategies that I'd been using, um, you know, getting my my professional start in middle school special education and inheriting students who had decided that anything that looks and feels like school was already not for them, that I found that the way I could um, get to them was by doing things that didn't look or feel like school. So we were up out of our desks, we were collaborating, we were doing games and the learning was real and it was deep, but it was almost hidden in a way where, I mean, it, it, the minute something looked or felt like sitting down in a desk and receiving a worksheet, I'd have lost them. Um, so I started to put together some of what was working for me and share it with other educators. It was positively received, grew, I presented more and more often and people started saying, well, I wish you had like a website where I could go to get this. I was like, okay, I'll make that happen. And then it was, well, you know, if you had a book, I could take these with me. And and I thought, well, okay, let's make that happen. Um, so I, I wrote Boredom Busters to really just put together 
um, the strategies, not so that it's a take and use book of strategies, but instead they're almost like frameworks that they can be used exactly the way I wrote them, or they can be used as almost like a, a spark, a hook, a framework of an idea that can then be adapted and used in literally any subject area, any grade level, any configuration. Um, there's accessibility considerations for students with various learning needs and different ways to adapt and modify each activity so that we can have fun with our students again, but not lose the value of learning. We can have a whole lot of fun with our kids and they learn nothing. So we know we're we're right. contracted to do a difficult job and that the state standardized test at the end of it is big and scary. And it is going to be the measure our students are measured by and we're measured by. So we can't ignore that. Um, so we want to have fun in a way that actually supports cognition, that each of the things we're doing has a reason we're doing it that way and that we can authentically engage students in fun learning that is actually going to be memorable um, and, and develop long-term retention of knowledge and skills. So that's really where Boredom Busters came from. Um, I had no intention of writing another book. It's like when you have a kid and people are like, when are you having another one? People would ask, when are no. you writing another one? And I was like, I already did that. Look, it exists. Like, ta-da. Um, but then I had a moment kind of in line of the story of veteran educators where um, it was actually the week we wound up shutting down for the pandemic, but it was early in that week, like Tuesday, we were in WEA map testing and um, dropped our students off for a guest speaker. And we all just stood outside the cafeteria in this loose clump um, and no one was saying anything. Everyone's looking down. And finally, one of my colleagues sighed and said, oh, I just feel like such a failure. And one of my coworkers goes, oh, thank God. And we were like, that is a weird response. Please explain. And she said, no, I felt like you all know what you're doing and that I'm the only one walking around who doesn't know what I'm doing and feels like I'm failing every day. So to hear that you feel like this too, I feel a lot better now. And I realized, ooh, this isn't something we're talking about. We aren't talking about what it is to be the veteran, to be highly effective, to be highly qualified and to still feel like, am I doing this job right? Like, am I okay? Yeah. Um, so that's really where Frustration Busters started was telling the story of this is a hard job. Let's be real about the statistics around it. Let's talk about teacher mental health in our profession. Let's talk about how hard classroom management is. And it's not just about how you arrange your desks or how students get their supplies, that, that we carry emotions and feelings in all of these exchanges that change the way we respond to things too. Um, and that was where um, Frustration Busters began. I just love it. Folks, I'll, I'll link both of those books in the show notes so you can go and grab copies of those. Um, final question here on, on the podcast, Katie. Um, I ask it of everybody. So you've, you've already shared so many things, but what might be another way that right now you're leaning into leadership? Um, I think right now my position in leadership is really the fact that I get to work with so many principals and district leaders so closely with the work I do with AMLE. Um, and there are times, in fact, the way um, one leadership team put it recently, I was supposed to have a coaching session with their school and something happened and I wasn't able to meet with the rest of the staff and they, the, the leadership said, can we still meet with you? And I said, of course. And I get on the Zoom and um, they were giggling and saying that that one of their school leaders had said they just needed uh, a dose of Katie to encourage them and keep them going. Um, that because of the unique nature of my role, I'm not part of the work a school or district is doing. So I get to serve in this objective, um, not involved capacity where I get to listen to what's really happening. I get to connect people to other people. What a gift to be able to go. I know someone else who's dealing with this. Let me connect you two together. You can lean into this together. I get to share reality beyond their own perspective so they get to to believe they're not alone in all of this um so i'm leading into learning with 
listening to people, hearing their stories and connecting them to each other. And what a gift to be able to do. Oh, it's, it's such a joy. Yeah, absolutely. That is that is really a wonderful thing. Um, I think I really appreciate it so much. Uh, Katie, I love this conversation. And I really appreciate you being here uh, and joining me on the podcast today. Well, thank you again for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Again, a big thank you to Katie Powell for being here on the Leaning Into Leadership podcast, folks. Make sure you hit uh, the links that are down there in the show notes for everything Katie Powell because uh, it is definitely worth your time to get connected with Katie. She's, she's a pretty awesome human being, and there are some amazing resources that are available for you for mid-level programs that truly will make a difference for your staff and make a difference for your kids. So make sure you get in there, check all that stuff out, check out everything that AMLE has to offer as a national organization and check into your own state level organization as well, because a lot of the state organizations, folks are absolutely fantastic. So make sure you check those out. And now it's time for a pep talk. So on today's pep talk, I want to talk about setbacks. Let's be honest, we all experience setbacks during the course of our life. Now, some of those setbacks are just small things. Some of them are a little bit bigger, you know, and some of them are things that just blindside us and come out of nowhere. Those little ones could be one decision that we make that ultimately we wish we'd done it a little bit differently. It could be maybe you take a risk and it doesn't work out. It could be similar to a situation I had about a month ago where you end up with some type of health scare that you know, land you in the hospital and you end up having surgery. Um, you know, all of those different types of setbacks have something in common. And that's how do we frame it in our own mind as we go forward? You know, you can't change what has happened that caused the setback. Now, you could certainly take a look at maybe some of the indicators that you could have used to say, hey, I can see this coming. Maybe you look at how you chose to make decisions and you look to make them a little bit differently in the future. But the key is, how do we learn from and adjust and prepare when we have a setback as we go forward? You know, it's all about your mindset, folks. You know, again, setbacks are going to happen. You're going to have those times as you go through the course of this school year where something is going to occur and you may handle it well and you may not, but ultimately you're going to learn from every single one of those experiences. And ultimately, if it becomes a setback, you've just got to be focused on how do I learn from this and how do I move forward? How do I give myself an opportunity to be a better person today than I was yesterday? How can I tomorrow, when my feet hit the floor first thing in the morning, make a better choice to be an even better human being tomorrow than I am today? Because the truth is, we're all going to experience setbacks. But another truth about setbacks is this. A setback is simply a setup for a comeback. It's all about your mindset, folks. It's all about how you choose to approach it. And it's all about how you decide you're going to show up. Thank you for joining me here on Leaning Into Leadership. Have a road to awesome week. Thank you for listening to the Leaning Into Leadership podcast brought to you by Road to Awesome. Don't forget, click subscribe, give a review, and share this with somebody who might also enjoy leaning into leadership.